0: We see kids being outright exploited, their papers being done for them, uh, having no time to study because of the the work hours that they're putting in and the expectations that are being put on them. So they're being treated like this is your full-time job. Your school is not even secondary. It is a distraction, it's an interference. And we are going to work you for one year, four years. And by the way, if you get injured and you're out, we turn our back on you you lose your scholarship you have no way of staying in that school no degree that that to me smacks of injustice
1: So as my regular listeners know, and if you're not a regular listener, you need to become one, but the regulars know I've already had two presidential candidates on this podcast, Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke, and we had great conversations and I feel like a lot of you guys learned a lot about the kind of plans that they plan to pursue. If they are elected president, you learn more about what they truly believe versus what you've heard versus what your mama said or your cousin said, you heard it directly from their mouth. So what's better than two presidential candidates? Three, of course. And so joining me today is the Senator from New Jersey, Cory Booker, who is preparing for next week's debate in Westerville, Ohio. Uh, But he had to stop through here in LA because he had a, a job that I think is equally important, as in equally important to pursuing the office of presidency. He had to be the arm candy for his girlfriend, Rosario Dawson. And we're certainly Going to talk about her. We have a lot to discuss in general. The impeachment inquiry, uh, his Kool-Aid joke at the uh, one of the earlier debates. Um, But also today he's revealing on this podcast an aggressive plan to combat the exploitation of college athletes. So buckle up. Cory Booker is next. As a journalist. You know, it's kind of my job to hold those in power accountable. Um, that's kind of a credo, an unofficial ethic that we have in this profession, not to say that everybody follows it. So, Corey, um, I think you need to be held accountable for the Kool-Aid joke that you bust <laughs> out during the presidential debate. I know you've been getting a lot of shit about
0: it. <laughs> well, you know what's wild is you watch these presidential debates, your life, you know? It's like, I don't care what profession you're in, you watch in the stage, and, you know, you grew up in a, in a black community, and it's rare. I mean, this is a pretty powerful thing that Kamala and I are two black people on a stage uh, that are legitimate contenders for the White House. But you also say that, like, that's not how people talk. You often want to, want to like, I wish people would talk about this or, or talk about that. So now I have this clear opportunity to just be myself. Yeah. Okay, so go ahead and give it to me. Oh, no, I'm, I'm no, it, to a, Hold you know, my feet to the fire. It
1: wasn't – I don't think it was you saying – you know, uh, you dropping the line and saying, like, uh, you know, hey, th- you all up in the Kool-Aid don't know what flavor. We've all heard that. Yeah. I think it When was, you
0: say we've all heard that, you know that, yeah, you're, that sorry, to be. Yeah, I'm sorry, two America, Black people know this, okay?
1: This is a tried and true phrase, and you were addressing that, of yes. course. Yes. Uh, Since uh, the days to-
0: I was playing the dozens in Los Angeles right here with my cousins, uh, uh <laughs> Uh, we would be dropping lines like that.
1: See, but it, I think it was, and it was addressed to Joe Biden, and I think it yes. was
0: the way you said it. I, I formalized it for you the vice president it. for the vice president of the United Dude, States of America.
1: I, there's a lot of black people out there that didn't know it was dipping, and they were thinking like, "But I thought it was just dipping."
0: You're yeah. like, you're dipping. We're like, oh, he, he yeah, gave the you know, formal. I, I basically brought some translation you for, brought, for, in honor and respect for the office.
1: Yes. We already knew you were bilingual, but yes. apparently you know multiple. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that there should be every every debate that you're in, and I, I realize it's, it's not that many left. You have the one that's next week, of course, and you qualify for the fifth one, too. For the November yeah, one. Yeah, for yes. the November one as well. That you need to work a phrase. <laughs> Do you a phrase. It? It? Like, just shout out your people about working a phrase up in there. You know, I personally think if at any point you said to um any of the the candidates that were like really challenging you, really getting under your skin, you say look, Here's all the places you got me fucked up at. Like if you did that, <laughs> I would be good with it. And I think the rest of us would too. Maybe you could clean that up in some way. I don't know. Uh, you, have if you, could, you have you to have translate it. You have to bring that. a debate. Here's a presidential debate stage uh, <laughs> translation. <laughs> it's a translation. But um I'm wondering though, when you're when you're in those moments, um, because I'm sure there's a lot going through your mind. So what's sort of your mental game plan as you're in a in a debate that you know everybody's watching, everybody's dissecting, tearing you apart? Um, and also looking for reasons why they should believe in you.
0: So I, So first of all, I have a campaign manager you, you're connected to, Adisu DeMessi, who's friends with your cousin, right?
1: Uh, no, no uh, one of my girls from college. One of your
0: girls from college, okay. Yes. And so he's the first black man that's ever run a major campaign for presidency. And the first debate was okay. And he just, but he just said to me, you need to be yourself. People need to feel you. You know, Maya Angelou says that people will long forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And so his coaching for the next debates was just beautiful. He's just like, go out there. You have fun. Uh, be yourself. Let let people know that, that feel the authentic you. And so that's really our strategy now is just to do that, and it's been working incredibly well. We've been getting a lot of kudos. You know how they have the they have the independent focus group CNN, and they'll ask them who won. You know we've been winning those consistently. So I I just I just really believe that you if you can get up there and let people know why you're running. And my me- message has been the same from jump, which is we have too many divisions in this country that are undermining our way to get things done. The lines that divide us are not as strong as the ties that bind us. And the generations that have done great things from going to the moon to beating the Nazis to ending Jim Crow, were generations that created new American majorities, found ways to put more indivisible into this one nation under God. And we can't define this election, especially as Democrats, can't define this election about what we're against. We need to talk in a more compelling way about what we're for. And I know folks say, it's, oh, oh, it's Donald Trump. I just got to find somebody who can beat Donald Trump. Pundits will say that to me. The number one polling thing is someone who can just beat Donald Trump. And my response always is, dear God, can't we have bigger aspirations than that? (laughs) Beating Donald Trump is a floor. It's not the ceiling. It's out of the valley. It doesn't get us to mountaintop. But if you want to come to where I live as the only person in the United States Senate that in, the, in this race as well that lives in a black and brown community below the poverty line. I live in, in Newark, New Jersey. And you tell people the only thing we want to accomplish in this election is to beat Donald Trump, You know they're going to say, well, wait a minute. We got shootings in our neighborhood. You know, We got folk that uh, work full-time jobs and still need food stamps at our local bodega. That's not right. We got people across the street from me. It's this incredible drug treatment center. And when I go sit with the fellas, you just see the absurdity of having their addiction treated with dozens of arrests before they even can get a bed or, or a place to find treatment. I mean, there's so many things in this country that are just wrong and we need to have bigger aspirations. We can't, this election isn't gonna define him. I think this is not a referendum on him, it's a referendum on us and who we're gonna be to each other.
1: So which debate performance did you feel like you were being your most you, you know, that people were really seeing who you were?
0: I, I think the first one, I was a little too stiff and not as relaxed. I think everyone since then, uh, I've been having a, lo- a lot of fun. And and for me, that's a good way of knowing, are, are you in your element? Are you in the, in your zone? So going back and forth with the vice president in a way that was respectful to him, but still challenged him on the fact that, hey, man, I, I'm when you were bragging about every major and minor crime bill has had my name on it, I was the young black guy getting pulled over by the police, seeing my friends. Uh, being ground into a, a criminal justice system, seeing people get arrested for doing things that two of the last three presidents admitted to doing. So, you know, you need to stand your ground, you need to to speak your truth, um, uh, uh, but you, at the same time, you need to not take yourself too seriously and not let, th- not let this be a dour negative moment. And one of the wonderful things I love about growing up in, in the black American tradition, uh, you know, is that... You know we're communities that see wretchedness and pain and hurt uh but yet people still find joy and humor i think some of the great social activists of our era were people like richard Pryor, or <laughs> were, were, were were dick gregory were people that found a way to to twist the the absurdities of, of realities help us to see our pain but also uh to find joy within it i always say that one of the best teachers of my life i got my ba at stanford but my phd on the streets of newark was an elderly woman that lived on the fifth floor of the project. She was our tenant president when I moved into these high-rise projects. Son was murdered in the lobby uh, uh, that I would eventually move into. She she had seen the worst that society could throw up. She had this toughness about her that I'm still here. Uh, but she had a humor about her, and she would dress you down if you were a kid. <laughs> you dressed me down, and I was the mayor of the city, and and. You know, she had this. She did this lesson. I took from her, which is hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word, and and that is a story of America. It's a story of the black tradition in America that even though you face the most awful realities, wretchedness of life, uh, you still choose to tell your truth, to be who you are, to not lose your laugh or uh, not lose your hope, not lose your spirit.
1: Yeah, Um, I've said this all the time, and I think. Most of us have lived it, you know, especially being black in this country. Is that we are the most resilient people on the planet? I mean, you look at just the history of, of our people, our history, even our people just in this country, and it's something that I've often thought to myself. Especially after I went to the National uh, African American Museum History Museum in in DC, um, when you start from the bottom of that museum, and I, I don't know, I, Can I ask you the
0: truth. Did you cry?
1: You know what? I had to take a time out. Yes. Yeah, I did. I, the the part that almost got me. Um, was the Emmett Till yeah. part part his casket, yeah. and I had to take a break after that, a yeah. little bit of a break, because I had successfully avoided seeing that open casket picture up until that moment. So I really? had, I had never seen it. I knew it existed. I knew why, and and his mother's decision, which I think was very powerful, to have an open casket so people could see what racism had done to her son, but seeing it, hearing the actual church service praying, Um, it it just, it was, it really almost brought me to my knees. It was, it was truly incredible. And so for people that have visited or want to visit that have asked me about my experience, I always tell them, how do you want to feel at the end? If you want to feel happier, Start at the bottom, work your way up from slavery, because at the top is where like Prince and all like the cool shit is. (laughs) Queen Latifah's earrings, you know, uh, New Jersey product that I know you you know. Yes, Newark, Uh, Newark, Newark, exactly. Um, So if you want to feel happy at the end, do that. But if you look, if you want to fight somebody, you start at the top, work your way bottom. The last thing you'll see is the slave trade (laughs) and you you're gonna feel um, a myriad of
0: emotions. so but yeah, what you, but, but what what's what's what really is important to me about that museum and is that we are a, a, a nation that has successfully whitewashed our history and just covered stuff up. I am a I am a, I'm a United States Senator going in there. I have degrees in history. I walk in that building and I learn stuff that i I didn't know and and you're right, it should make you angry. It should churn the soil of your soul. On this on this presidential campaign, I I try to say there's an old saying from from the East Asian traditions how you live your days is how you live your life. So so in other words, what's important to you do it every day. And and so one of the things that's important to me is visit prisons because we are a society that tries to make those places where we just put people and forget about them. And and I think it's awful that we do that. And. But but um, for me, I want to constantly try to be learning things. And one of my staff, I was going to Oklahoma for for invited there for fundraiser, and I, I wanted to go to Black Wall Street. And I thought I knew the history. And I get there, I'm thinking it's a street, but this is like 40 square blocks that was leveled. Before there was a bombing at Pearl Harbor, this was a, our first aerial bombing done. It was a devastation. And, and when I started this tour with these incredible activists, I just started my the, feeling this grief that I hadn't felt since I went to the museum Brian Stevenson did in Mo- Montgomery, Alabama, to the story of of lynching in this country, which is not told the thousands of people the god awful horrific stories, um, and I just started weeping. I'm, I, there was all the cameras around, but I just couldn't contain the grief of seeing this thriving african-american city it wasn't wall street it was a thriving city they have the businesses listed there that were just bombed and burned and looted and pillaged um the, the the history of that conflict so when you talk about resiliency in your dna I mean you started with slavery in the middle passage one out of every four people that got on those ships would die you would have people coming over with ships where half of their cargo if you want to call human beings that would would die and then to decide that survive the wretchedness and the viciousness and the horrors of slavery but that period after slavery is the one i wish more americans knew about because it was the same time that blacks started asserting power you saw the first Black Congress people in that period, incredible stories of heroic African Americans coming out of the Civil War, war heroes, and then you have this backlash in the eighteen seventies that begins with black judges being dragged out into the streets, beaten, killed, massacres, burnings, forced castrations. This long period that's been virtually covered over in our country.
1: Yeah, that's what's interesting to me when I hear conservatives um give Uh, Black people and brown people um, that pull yourself up by the bootstrap street, a speech. I love when they say that because I'm like, hmm, literally every time we tried to do that, the level of resistance that we have been met with is is really staggering. I mean, you brought up Black Wall Street. I mean, this was a self-sufficient community of black people, own wealth, own banks, like literally everything there and became the most desirable section in that town. And that's why they burned it down. It's like we were getting too self-sufficient. We were getting too powerful. And they couldn't take it. And the root of where that conflict started, I mean, I'm actually surprised that nobody, and maybe they have, and I just don't know it or can't remember it, that somebody hasn't done a major motion picture about what happened uh, with Black Wall Street. But. Uh, I digress, because we I, we could go off in But history. I do want to
0: say that you and I sitting here, yeah. this isn't an ancient history. Right. No, Our it's not. Our lives. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's going on right now. And when I talked about prisons and jails, Mass Incarceration, as Michelle Alexander's famous book, it, it is the new Jim Crow. And I still say things like this to audiences. I was just in Iowa. And when I say it out loud, you hear the audience sort of react. It's like, that can't be true. When I say that there are more African Americans now under criminal supervision, jail, probation, prison, parole, more African-Americans now under criminal supervision than all the slaves in 1850. And it's overwhelmingly because of this so-called war on drugs. And people don't even think it goes on. There's more marijuana arrests in 2017 than all violent crime arrests combined. And they're disproportionately arresting low-income Black and Brown people, who then get a life sentence for that. You you have one felony arrest for marijuana, you can't get business licenses. You can I was down in here in L.A. Uh, with Nipsey Hussle's team. He couldn't. The guy couldn't get a loan from the, a bank because of a of a prior a drug conviction. And so we have these nonviolent drug crimes that are devastating communities. Because I see this in Newark. You're taking parents away from children, again, for doing things that I saw friends of mine do in college regularly, And then they lose their jobs. They get evicted from their homes. It devastates entire communities. Villanova University did a study that said we'd have 20% less poverty in America if we had incarceration rates the same as our industrial peers. So this touches our lives. My family literally had to get a white couple to pose as them to buy the home I grew up in 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 Harrington Park, New Jersey, because these, these were overt practices and laws going up into the 1970s. And as soon as the overt You know, redlining and uh, mortgage discrimination—all these things that created communities like Detroit and 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 Newark. As soon as they were over, that's when mass incarceration began. Eight hundred percent increase in the federal prison population since 1980 alone. So we not talking about this stuff and and the the present day physical manifestation of racist laws. Black people couldn't take care, take advantage of the GI Bill. Social Security was written to exclude the ways generational wealth has been built in this country, your home, uh, a, a lot of these government programs and government opportunities. We need to name them uh, so that people understand that when you talk about the black-white wealth differential in this country being 10 to 1, you have cities like Boston where the average white family has about $270,000 of wealth. The average black person is $8. $8.
1: Yeah, I thought it was a typo when I read that Boston Globe, um, that huge enterprise piece that they did. But yes, that is not a typo. It is $8. Now, while not slavery, Something that you now are kind of picking up and, and and launching a fight against is the exploitation of athletes, of yeah. college athletes, and you have a new plan. Um, and obviously, being here in L.A. in California, everybody saw what uh, Gavin Newsom did uh, with the act that he's going to that he already signed in the law that will allow athletes to make money on their name, their likeness, their image, which seems like the most basic thing in the world, but. Not when it comes to the NCAA, of course, but you have a new plan to, in your mind, help in the exploitation of of college athletes. Why don't you give a couple of bullet points of, of what that plan is and how you plan to advance this conversation so that uh, college athletes can now begin to get paid off of their own work and labor.
0: So this is my experience, I, 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 and I feel grateful. I would not be here if it wasn't for college football. I, I always joke I got into Stanford because of a 4.0, 1,600, 4.0 yards per carry, 1,600 receiving yards, um, and it was just a great experience. But what I saw as a college football player was just absurdities. Now, I came from a, a, a middle-income family, and yet you had colleagues of mine that came from lower-income areas across the country that you know, people are making money off of you—a fourteen billion dollar industry. But you can't even fly to see your parents, and if you try to sell your jersey or do something to make money because you're you you can't you, there's constraints on your ability to do things to make income. Um, uh, the 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 NCA punishes you in a pretty harsh way. And so I try to tell people that we have a savagely unfair system. The, you court kids into these schools. If they blow out their knee in their second year, they lose their scholarship. They're a piece of meat now. They're no longer useful to you. Um, you have rules that are written to undermine you any ability you have to compete. Like I, the, the the letter of intent that we all sign. Yeah. Uh, I mean, year to year renewables. That's you, what
1: people have to understand. That is not a
0: four year scholarship. No, it is not. <laughs> yeah. And and they and and you see people bounced out. Um, uh, who've made their decisions based upon this four-year scholarship and realize in the harshest of ways that it's not, you're a piece of meat. And and by the way, then you have your life. I still have a shoulder injury. I have friends of mine, knees, uh, uh, brain injuries, that now you're paying the medical bills You know, five years out, six years out, when you have these chronic illnesses. You're dealing with all of that. And meanwhile, you, they're still making money off of you with your likeness and image on Madden football or something like that. So I came out with, uh, in my presidential campaign, as I said, I want to talk about the issues other folks don't often talk about. 170 plans uh, uh, that presidential candidates have. Nobody was talking about child poverty. We came out this past week with a a bold plan to end child poverty. But I, I think this is really important, and seeing what's happening to athletes, whether it's uh, uh, women athletes not paid, not getting paid uh, uh, equitably. Whether it's college athletes having their being exploited, people making millions of dollars off of them, and them being left, with, left without a college degree, with a broken body, uh, and no pathway uh, uh, to, to economic stability, or, or even uh, just bigger issues about, well, you know what. Should college athletes be able to organize in, in unions? Should they? Uh, uh, what what rights should they have on college campuses? And so we put out a pretty comprehensive plan to address a lot of these issues. I'm really proud of it.
1: Um, so why is this? It, you mentioned the fact that just this week you unveiled something to combat child poverty. People look people can understand child poverty, you know, given your position in, in, in the Senate and the fact that you're running for president. But then picking up the fight on. On behalf of college athletes. Why do you think this is so important and, and this is the time to for you
0: to address this? Well, I've been talking about this since I got into the Senate because remember, these leagues are given um, uh, protections against antitrust laws. So the federal government is granting them a lot to allow them to have these monopolies, these leagues. And Uh, It is such a powerful part of our culture. These are culturally impacting uh, institutions who affect uh, the truth of who we are. And young people are being pulled into these systems and often taken advantage of. And so this to me is an issue of basic fairness. It's about expanding opportunity. Part of my plan talks about how do we get more equity, not just gender equity, but low-income kids having the same opportunity as wealthier or or, uh, rich kids, period. And so I just think it's it, it is a very important issue. And as a guy that has seen it from the bowels and the inside, um, uh, I, I think that these are these are young people that deserve to have fairness, equality, and not be exploited. Especially when you start looking at its disproportionate impact on the money generating sports, which are disproportionately African Americans uh, in many of those sports. Who it, the lies that you're told or. You know, I remember in season working 60, 70 plus hours a week. Um, there, there are people that do run scams on them, uh, allowing them to get degrees or to move forward, but then they leave them again without an education. There's a lot of injustice that's going on, and this is an area I think is important that we as a society say enough is enough.
1: So the NCAA scene, just based off their early commentary to Gavin Newsom's bill, Um, The NCAA, just meaning the actual governing, you know, sort of body as in uh, the president of the NCAA, they seem very resistant to this idea. How, How do you think they're handling kind of this age that we're in now where college sports, particularly basketball and football, are making billions of dollars? How do you think the NCAA has handled this transition, even though technically they're considered an amateur organization, as in, you know, overseeing amateurs? That they've handled, um, you know, how to be more fair to uh, to some of the college athletes that are out there. Horribly.
0: Yeah. Horribly. I mean, when you have folks that say in the middle of an NCAA tournament, uh, I, I go to bed some nights without food um, uh, because of the rules of the NCAA. When you have people that, you know, as I said, can't get their degrees or the rules of the game don't apply to the coaches. Like, I still remember flying in um, – to Duke uh, uh, and being recruited by Spurrier. And Spurrier was just named as Duke's coach, but he had been recruiting me hard from another school and he's a pretty persuasive guy. If I had signed a letter of intent there, Spurrier now moves over from one school to another, no penalty whatsoever. If I wanted to try to even follow the coach that that quartered me into that school, these arcane NCA rules would say I'd have to give up a year of eligibility. Uh, I'd have to sit out for a year. There, there is no fairness whatsoever in terms of what we we ideally think, that this is something that's going to empower athletes in life, uh, give them a great education, uh, expand opportunities. That's not the story we always see. And I've talked to so many of my fellow former athletes who are just bitter uh, that they're still selling jerseys with their names on it, uh, and they're struggling to make ends meet in their life, but their universities, college NCAA, is still making money off of them. These are billion-dollar enterprises, major TV contracts, individuals who are generating these revenues, and you won't even allow them during the summer uh, to advertise for uh, to do uh, clinics or sp- to do a soccer uh, training. I mean, the kind of. Rules are, are make me so angry because I see how, I, I don't, a lot of times people talk about, oh, the, but you're going to come out of college, get your $10 million contract. No, I'm talking about so many of the students that are churned into the system, great hope, great opportunity, uh, but then are often found themselves left at the end without their dreams of pro sports happening, but now also without a college degree, nursing injuries, and, and, and worse.
1: Do you think that NCAA can ultimately survive unless they adopt some kind of business model that Compensates athletes.
0: I, I think they have to have a, a fairer business model, and they have to change laws. Like I promote this idea that you have a lifetime scholarship, that you should be able to come back to school five years later and have the ability to, to finish your degree. I think they should have health coverage for student athletes in perpetuity, especially if it's a, 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 a an illness related to your time that you played that sport. There are lots of common sense reforms, but this idea that in America that there should be if you are generating such revenue that you cannot share in that revenue whatsoever because of this fiction, that somehow you are a um, not a professional athlete, uh, that this is an amateur, there's something really wrong with that, that the people that are generating the revenue, they don't get to share at all in any of that and often find themselves five years later um, in bad financial straits with injuries and without an education.
1: What would you say to the people who, as I mentioned, you know, this is a, inter- a interesting topic for a presidential candidate to, to tackle. What would you say to the people who say, don't you think you have more important things rather than seeing some college athletes who, I guess, to use their own what I find to be a very silly argument, who are getting a, quote, free education should your priorities be better spent in another direction than trying to fix the ncaa
0: so first of all i'm I'm a little more capable of being able to focus on more than one thing and this is why i have dozens of uh, of policy plans that are really important to me and as a senator again i've taken stands on a lot of these issues uh you know should we be using taxpayer dollars to build these stadiums no, uh, um, should we be, Should I, I've taken lots of stance on sports issues because I think they are important, not just to our culture, but issues of fairness. But should a young person be seduced? And by the way, I could tell you stories back in, especially the wild days of the '80s when I was recruited about um, the way they would seduce a 17-year-old into certain schools and the kind of uh, outrageous things that were that went on. And I know a lot of that's been curtailed, but. But still,
1: thank you know, it's you. a story I'm, at Louisville that uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, try- I'm trying some to, strippers and uh, some I'm, loose cash hanging around. I'm yeah, not so sure yeah, how much I'm, they've actually curtailed it.
0: Yes, <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, but I was in these crazy days where they. You can get called by anybody. I'm getting like former presidents Gerald Ford calling me up to go to Michigan. I'm getting, you know, for my. They must have known what was me because like when Andy Young calls me out to go to Georgia Tech, I'm like, this is Andrew Young, who's like a hero in my family. Um, but look, they, they they we see kids being outright exploited. Their papers being done for them having no time to study because of the the work hours that they're putting in and the expectations that are being put on them. So they're being treated like this is your full-time job. Your school is not even secondary. It is a distraction, is an interference. And we are going to work you for one year, four years. And by the way, if you get injured and you're out, we turn our back on you. You lose your scholarship. You have no way of staying in that school, no degree. That that to me smacks of injustice, and and it, it is plainly what it is. And so I, I can put out policy proposals on housing, uh, on healthcare, on. A child poverty on all the issues that I wish, again, as a guy who's fought in uh, urban contexts to expand opportunity, I'm doing everything that I want to see done. But as a guy who's seen from the inside college sports, there is a ugly, ugly side to it that needs to be cleaned up, especially if the college sports are getting from the federal government uh, uh, all of these kind of exemptions from antitrust that are allowing them Uh, uh, to do the kind of things that that reap incredible profits that are not being seen or equally shared by the people that are actually on the field or on the court uh, uh, producing those profits.
1: So it almost sounds like you feel like from from a government standpoint that you all are in a unique position to apply the pressure that hasn't that hasn't been yeah. put on the NCAA before. I have a
0: unique position. I think we are the only ones that can do this. Clearly, they can't reform themselves from within because these issues I'm bringing up were being brought up when I was a student and the reforms are creeping along because nobody is calling them to the mat. Uh, and again, if I'm president of the United States, I'll be happy to welcome the NCAA champions uh, to the White House and maybe I'll get some NBA basketball teams to come back to the White House. Um, but I'm also going to be a president that calls them to task for uh, allowing students to have the experience that they are promised, which means a quality education. Uh, that means we respect them and their bodies uh, uh, and that we make sure that we have equity when it comes to gender uh, equity, when it comes to um, uh, equality of opportunity as well.
1: Yeah, it, it was interesting to know just in the um, what I've seen of, of, of what you're proposing that you Singled out the fact that, uh, which a lot of people don't know, is with the WNBA in particular, that they're only making 25% uh, of, the, of the revenue share compared to what the NBA players make, which is 50%. Because a lot of people, I felt like, did not understand the argument the WNBA players were trying to make. They weren't saying that their number one pick should make as much as LeBron James. What yeah. they were saying is that for what we're bringing in, yes. we need to make more than
0: 25%. <laughs> you have equitable share in the revenue you're producing. But it's worse. I mean... NBA cheerleaders, NFL cheerleaders—I mean, the the kind of awful—and we've seen the lawsuits. Uh, I I mean, they are—they are not. I don't. If you went to the hourly wages that they're—they're not even getting paid living wages for the work that they're doing, and—and they're facing harassment and other challenges. There's got to be rules of the road, and we've got to hold these teams and these leagues accountable uh, for the work conditions of the people uh, that are engaged under their employ.
1: Yeah, um, I definitely want to dive a little bit more into this bill. I, uh, we have to take a quick break because I want to ask you about one particular component, which would address what happened to Colin Kaepernick. Yes. Right, that you have put in this proposed legislation. So uh, more with Cory Booker when we come back. So as I mentioned before the break, um, as we were discussing this robust, ambitious, but very thoughtful um, legislation you've put forth in trying to remedy some of the exploitation that college athletes are currently experiencing in this billion-dollar system, one of the things that I definitely took note of was that you want to end uh, anti-competitive and anti-worker practices, and you specifically referred to Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed, their collusion case against the NFL. How might what you're proposing help or make sure something like that does not happen again?
0: Yeah, I just believe in workers' rights. And when you have anti-competitive practices where you have owners of businesses colluding against workers and workers' rights, um, we've got we've to gotta raise a flag and stop that kind of practices. And this one is obviously doubly— Impactful to me as an American, where I see someone who is standing up for their freedom of speech rights in a tradition that goes back to the '68 Olympics. I mean, I can go through all the incredible moments where athletes and African American athletes, in particular, stood up uh, to call this con- to this country's consciousness. And so, to see what happened to him, to the two of them, uh, which I think was 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 very. Plain to many of us, those kind of practices are anti-competitive, anti-free speech, First Amendment, and I think we have to do something about that.
1: Okay, um, and I'm sure people, as uh, you know, this becomes more and more public. There'll be a lot of different people weighing in about you know whether or not something like this could help, and whether or not it's government's place. Because it, it was funny, I saw the Gonzaga basketball coach some comments that Mark Few made where. Uh, he essentially told uh, Gavin Newsom to mind his business. I'm like, wow, like he was, he was real strong with it. On the other end of it, Coach K has come out and talked about how much he supports um, the fair pay and play act.
0: Yeah. And I'll tell you this, people have to understand that the only referee here is the federal government because again, we extend to these businesses the ability to have, to do things that we don't allow other industries to do, which is sort of a monopolistic power, uh, to create uh, the kind of uh, leagues themselves, or we allow them to have exemptions to antitrust uh, uh, laws and the like.
1: So, uh, talk about your journey um, in sports. Um, you know, you were a high school all American, yeah. correct? Um, how do you think that being a high school all American, playing competitively in team sports, obviously playing uh, uh, in college, how do you think that's prepared you for like kind of where you are now?
0: Um, I mean, so much of what I am, and you know this, when you're a young athlete, it's a defining aspect of your life. And um, I had parents that kept my feet on the ground. You know, they told me, helped me understand at a very early age that football can be my ticket, but boy, it's not your destination. And so for me, you know, the lessons I learned on the on the field and the gridiron were, you know, about team, about relying on your, your brother, you know, about delayed gratification you win the games in the fall by the double days you're doing in, in august um i learned about leadership the first major leadership roles i had as captain of my of my team in, in my high school days so I, I draw on that grit um all the time and i draw on those lessons and you know, some of the most kind of glorious examples of what I believe we need as a country right now. This this idea of teams coming together can accomplish so much more. There's an old African saying, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. And, you know, look, when Stanford was rolling it up into South Bend, Indiana and they were ranked number one in the country, we weren't even ranked in the top in the top 100, I think. And Denny Green's message to us that whole week is, yeah, they're better athletes than you. Raheem Ishmael, Michael Stonebreaker, uh, one of the greatest college football players I think I've ever seen, a guy named uh, Chris Zorish. They're better individuals than you, but we can be a better team and we could shock the world. And I'll never forget that year, Sports Illustrated called it the second biggest upset in all of sports after Mike Tyson getting beat by Buster Douglas. So these are the affirmation points along your way into... Your professional life into life itself, and you know, look. When I got to Newark, New Jersey, uh, I knew that the power comes from our ability to come together as a community. And it began for me as a tenant organizer taking on slumlords. They they benefited from our separation, but when we pulled together this one set of projects, we had so much power over even the most ugly. Uh, uh, powerful, wealthy interests. And when we came as a city, I used to tell people all the time, if we can create uncommon coalitions in Newark, we're going to produce uncommon results. And we were able to transform a school system to uh, transform an economy that's 60 years of decline. So I just think we're at a point in America where we don't understand that our team is losing right now and falling behind. We had the best infrastructure on the planet Earth. Now, China's built 18,000 miles of high speed rail. The busiest rail corridor in America that goes from Boston to DC runs half an hour slower than it did in the 1960s. And you in California are arguing about high speed rail. And forget rail, think about broadband infrastructure. I just came from Iowa, South Carolina. Kids don't have access to the internet. Our competitors. Japan, South Korea, Germany, all their kids have access to the internet. So what are we what are we becoming as a country where we don't invest in each other as a team? How can we be the industrial nation that leads all other industrial nations in taking and cultivating the greatest natural resource a country has, not oil, gas, or coal, the genius of our children? We lead all industrial nations in infant mortality, maternal mortality, low birth weight babies. It's not only morally wrong that we have all these complications at birth that undermine our, our children's ability to succeed, but it's financially wrong. It is cheaper to give every low-income woman access to doula care than it is to have all the kind of complications we have at birth with people who don't really get prenatal care to the hospital emergency room. So I'm a competitor. I say this to people all the time on the, on the, on the presidential campaign trail. I, I, I want to bring it. And, and the only way I know to win big games is by having a strong team. And I tell people this analogy. I would tell my friends in the huddle, when we were going to score a touchdown my sure tell sign was when i saw the defensive huddle start to argue amongst themselves yell at each other blame each other i'm like we were going to blow through these guys cuz they're falling apart well what are we doing right now in america we are attacking each other with a ferocity that i've 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 never witnessed in my life i you know i've talked to some other presidential candidate you get heckled people get up in your face like physical uh, coming at you because you uh, of the party you're in. We hate each other before we listen to each other. We can't fall into tribalism as a country. I, I read a, um, you know, as a senator, you get a- access to classified information. So you go down into this bunker underneath the Senate to read whatever there is, intelligence reports about Iran or what have you. So the last one I read was an intelligence report about Russia's interference in our elections. And what was stunning to me was one of their strategies Russia's strategies to undermine our democracy, or our way of life, is to use our social media platforms to make us hate each other. They are trying to whip up more, and not just partisan whipping up, which they're doing, but even the Democratic Party, they're trying to make us hate each other. They're trying to make black people get mad at people like Secretary Clinton. I mean, they were running bots to do just that. And so I'm running my whole campaign on this understanding that patriotism is love of country, and you can't love your country unless you love your fellow countrymen and women. And love is not a sentiment. It's not anemic. Love is sacrifice. Love is struggle. Love is saying if your kids don't have prenatal care, if your kids don't have a great public school, then my kids are less off. Love is knowing that we're all in a common struggle and we have a common destiny, and and we got to get there.
1: Yeah, um, it it definitely seems like this is—and it's it's tough to—I feel weird saying— it's the most divisive, knowing that my mother lived through yes. <laughs> the civil rights era. Like it's yes. just like it's kind of weird yes. to say that, um, but I certainly understand all those sentiments. And now, obviously, uh, everything that's been in the news lately has been about um, Donald Trump impeachment. Um, what do you stand on impeachment?
0: By the way, uh, I've been calling for impeachment proceedings long before Nancy Pelosi finally decided to get there, and uh, I swore an oath. I forget the politics. I swore an oath. I stood there on the Senate floor. October uh, in 2013 my coming kind up of my anniversary in the Senate. Joe Biden swore me in; he was the Vice President at the time. And I said, "I will. I'm swearing an oath to uphold, defend, protect the Constitution of the United States. This president is violating those constitutional principles. I mean, you see, this week he doesn't even think he's subject to checks and balances. Yeah,
1: um, he, I was, and I, I maybe it's just me, and I had a different understanding. You're a senator; you know these policies and the intricacies of law better than I do. But I thought when you got subpoenaed. That I actually meant something, but it doesn't seem like it means what it used to mean. Or maybe it means something different to
0: different people. No, what I, am I missing there? You, you're not missing. It. I love that. Now, right now, they're running, they're airing all these uh, uh, Republicans who are yelling at Barack Obama because he's not giving out timely information or getting them the stuff they need to run their investigations. And now they're trying to defend a guy that won't even let people testify. So, so literally, if you, I don't care what your party is, the foundational ideals of our, our, our of our. Democracy are that nobody has supreme power. Everybody is subject to the law, to checks and balances, co-equal branches of government. But for the first time in my lifetime, I am—we I, are literally watching a president say, "I'm above the law. I'm not subject to the checks and balances. I don't have to comply uh, uh, with you. There's no—you do not have uh, uh, oversight over my 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 presidency. That is a a lurch towards. Uh, authoritarian rule like we're seeing in turkey like we're seeing in hungary this cannot be where the united states goes he is not the dictator in our nation he must be subject to congressional investigations if he's not we should impeach him and 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 take him out of office
1: were you in agreement with how um nancy pelosi handled uh, this entire impeachment inquiry, as in, a lot of people were critical in the sense that they felt like that they should have been here, or she should have been here before now, because she was very resistant. Yeah, for a while. Uh, how would you assess how she how she handled so
0: it? So, one, let me just say, I am I I was a Nancy Pelosi fan before she ascended to get the speakership again in the United States of America, which is these she's a historic record breaking now in the chain of pre- the, the presidency i mean she's one of the most powerful people in all, all the planet earth and i was a fan of hers before she ascended to the second time i think she's handled uh, her, her office brilliantly with with uh, a very large caucus that ranged from conservative democrats to uh uh democratic socialists um so i don't agree with the decisions she makes all the time i really don't i, I think that uh after the Mueller probe when he was refusing to let uh, people testify, refusing to turn over documents and allow Congress to complete the investigation. As Mueller himself said, hey, here are 10 ways that he likely obstructed justice. Now Congress must do their investigation. And the president said, no, that was a point for me. That was a bridge too far. And I said, we shouldn't begin impeachment proceedings. So I don't agree with all the decisions she makes, but I'll tell you right now, I'm very happy she's there. (laughs) Very happy she's there.
1: Um, And as many have noted and has been seen is that You would think that with some of these things being so obvious, and this is not about, as you pointed out, this is not about party affiliation. This is about enforcing the rule of law. And uh, but yet you still see a number of conservatives, a number of Republicans, uh, lawmakers in particular, who continue to support this behavior. Uh, At this point, given all the evidence and what we know about what possibly happened with this call uh, involving the Ukraine, Does it surprise you that they are just willing to die on this hill and they don't care how bad that hill gets?
0: So this is the hope I have from historical precedent, which is when the Nixon crisis broke out, it was people were firmly in partisan ranks. And yet as more evidence started coming out, you saw the shifting of the American public. And the reason why Nixon didn't wait around to get impeached, he left office because he started losing Republicans. And so this is going to be a, a similar test, I suspect, because we don't even know the first. We're in the foothills of the mountain of evidence that's going to come out because the two whistleblowers have pointed to the State Department, the Department of Justice, so many other people that could have been involved in this behavior, ambassadors. So we have a lot more to get out. And I suspect, I don't suspect, I, I am confident that this president, because of his public statements, China, come on in, doing exactly what our founding fathers warned us about, foreign interference of our elections. Here's a president that's openly calling for that. I think that that behavior that when he when the public is not watching, this gets back to the shithole comment things, when he thinks people aren't watching and he's having private conversations, I think he's going way over the line. And I think the more of that comes out, my prayer is, is that we will have patriots will choose their 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 country over their party, that will choose uh, their co- the constitution over their short-term political uh, uh, petty uh, interests.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm glad you have that optimism. Um, I struggle with it. I don't exactly share it because I see a humongous power grab and it just feels as if A lot of people are totally okay with sacrificing everything, every last shred of dignity they have to hold on to something that historically is going to make them look like some of the worst people ever. And they seem fine with it. They seem comfortable. And I guess as a taxpayer and and as an American, that's just, that's really frightening to kind of see this um, play out. Uh, But that's uh, why
0: we fight, right? Right. And and that's why people that are listening to this right now... Don't think you're you're helpless in this. I, I, we all have an obligation to, to call people out, to speak up, to let our voices be heard, to participate in the process. And I've seen it, everything from healthcare. I mean, they were literally about to rip away the Affordable Care Act completely right away, kicking millions of people off their health insurance. But you had all of these people come forward that changed a few Republicans' minds and we didn't lose it. I, I think about how we got... Women's rights. It wasn't because a bunch of men on the Senate floor in 1920 during the suffrage movement suddenly just said, hey, fellas, let's give women the right to vote. Ready, go. No, it was because the American public in moral moments spoke up. And when we see bad things happening in the past, you saw levels of when there's a the famous fire in New York, the shirtwaist factory fire where women were throwing themselves out windows, blocked passengers, and died on the pavement below. This country responded. Emmett Till, four girls dying in a a bombing in Birmingham, suddenly this wasn't a black person's problem. This was an offense to America. We have a a problem now with this impotency of empathy where we have people dying in churches in South Carolina, synagogues in in Pittsburgh, children from Newtown to Parkland being shot under their desks, and we don't do anything. We're not demanding laws. We're not active enough. And so, so. in fact, this is a horrible fall. This is like, People should know that September was one of the more shameful months in American history where the most powerful country on the planet Earth sent its children to school for the first time ever telling them, we can't protect you, so you're going to learn how to hide in school. There were more shelter-in-place drills, active shooter drills, and fire drills now in America. But my point is, is that my faith in this country comes from the fact that that when our back was against the wall... We saw people respond, but my, my caution to everybody who thinks that this democracy is a spectator sport, it's not. You can't sit on the sidelines calling out color commentary, letting Rachel get you all upset at night if that's who you watch, and then not thinking you have any responsibility. King warned us in his era that what we will have to repent for is not the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people. It's the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. And there's a whole lot of folks here that are now condemning Donald Trump who didn't go out and vote. We lost, heck, just take it about the cities. We lost uh, Wisconsin by 11,000 votes. In Milwaukee alone, we had black voter turnout was down about 70, 80,000 people compared to four years before. We have so much power. We, we will always have wretchedness and bigotry and hate. The gardens of our democracy have always been full of that, McCarthyism. Uh, um, uh, There was an entire political party that was using the rhetoric of this president, anti-immigration, they were the know-nothing party, and they were against Germans and, and Italian and Irish immigrants. But how did we beat them? We beat them because of ordinary citizens, who became artists of activism. We beat Bull Connor, not because we brought bigger dogs and bigger fire hoses, but we saw citizens call to the conscience of this country and motivate people to not let the bigots and the the fear mongers and the demagogues win. I think we're in that moment right now where we need to see a a rising up of more activism and engagement to call this stuff out. Our very democracy, the foundations of our democracy are in the balance. The question should be not what are they gonna do, but what am I gonna do about it?
1: I see why you're running for president. I kind of get that. I kind of get why you're good at this. (laughs) I see why. I do wonder this, though. Um, Looking at it now, do you think, look, at some point, Donald Trump is going to leave office. It's just a matter of how, right? He's going to leave office. Has, in your mind, the presidency, that office changed forever because of some of his behavior and what has been allowed to happen there?
0: I think we are a resilient nation, as you and I have talked about, that, that, I, and I'm, I really hope, and I'm running, because I think I'm the person, but if I'm not, my my prayer for my country is that the next president, whoever they are, they are really good at healing and uniting and inspiring that more courageous empathy and that love that I talk about. But the one thing I'll say is that I hope that what Donald Trump has showed us in the negative, the next president feels a little bit less confined and that whoever she or he is begins to say, you know what, I'm going to use my social media platforms in ways that they didn't before. This is the new generation. I'm, I would be the first X Gen ever to be in the White House. We need to un. I want to use every platform I have, not just to push legislation and the intricacies like we were talking about. But I think big legislation gets done when we create when we creatively think about how can this country sort of reignite that sense of common purpose, like. When when what, what often does it is negative things like Russians put up Sputnik, and we're like, uh oh, we better get together. And so suddenly you have hidden figures, black women getting together with creating these coalitions. Everybody, we got to do this, got to do this quick, and we get something done. Or nine eleven, I remember this the spirit in New York, and, I, and we're in New Jersey. I'm right across the Hudson River, ten miles from ten or so miles from from Ground Zero, and that sense of bonding and sense of unity. I saw it, it in Hurricane Sandy and. We we need to be able to mobilize that sense of common purpose where you stop asking the person what party they are and just saying hey let's lend a hand and I'm not saying and I and I get a little but my backup sometimes because people say oh Corey you're just talking about kumbaya no I'm not <laughs> I'm actually talking about the very opposite of that which which the kind of ferocity of uh, love that we saw from Ella Baker or. Uh, uh, from from Malcolm X, if you read his autobiography, the end of his autobiography is a fearsome kind, of, kind of brand of love, and I think that that's what we need. that's not going to compromise, or um, well, let me compromise, not the word. is not going to not going to surrender ideals of justice, but it's going to fight in a way that calls people together as opposed to rips people apart. If you
1: don't win the nomination, would you consider doing this again,
0: running for president again? Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about a movie fan, so I love when uh, Rocky one. he's like, ain't gonna be no rematch. Ain't gonna be no rematch. <laughs> and yet there was a Rocky too. <laughs> um, but look- um, There was I'm, like
1: eight Rockies, so uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: no. Um, I'm pouring all my heart and soul into this race. And because I think this is a moment that calls for what I, I have to offer. Um, I, and I really, I don't want to see- I'll support whoever the nominee is, but I really don't want it to be a fight fire with fire person. I, I ran a fire department in Newark. Not a good strategy. Um, I don't I don't think my party, I think my party, I, I'll tell you, like I was running up for, my, one of my favorite moments in this campaign was funny because I'm running up to the stage, uh, rambling up to the stage, big dudes at the at stage. I'm a big dude as, you know, Stanford football player. The older I get, the better I was. I, I'm surprised you didn't let me brag, brag and exaggerate my exploits. Look,
1: look, Al Bundy. We only got so much time <laughs> on here, all right? And then what? The Polkai championship game <laughs> yeah. story, all right?
0: <laughs> so dude stops me at the, and he goes, dude, I want you to punch Donald Trump in the face. And I look at him, and it's missing a beat, and I go, dude, that's a felony.
1: <laughs> that's when you know you grow. That yeah, is growth. <laughs> yeah, and, and
0: it's just like, we're not going to beat him by being like him or fighting him. And if we do win bringing that same energy, we may win the White House, but we're not gonna get big things done. And I just think that we, the, the way this, the next chapter of this country, sometimes you know you gotta go to the pit before you go to the palace as Joseph was thrown into the pit. Uh, I think that, that that we now need to get back to a, a revival of that civic grace. We need to get back to seeing each other for the truth that we are. And if you pull the issues away from the politics, you know, the, if you pull Obamacare with Republicans, they hate it. But you pull the actual parts of the policy just naked, like do you believe people with pre-existing conditions should not be kicked off their insurance, so-and-so. People love it. We agree, 90% of Americans in common sense gun safety, 90% of Americans raising the minimum wage. I could go through all the things that are parts of the different pile of platforms of the Democrats that Republicans agree with us on, but why can't we get it done? And so I think that this, as as other countries are are, are doing better than us on infrastructure. Heck, we're no longer the most R&D-intensive economy anymore. We're not even investing in the ideas of the future in the ways that other economies are. Educa- out Educating us. We need to get back to being competitors, but the only way to do that, as I learned on the football fields in New Jersey, is by having a tighter, stronger, unified team uh, than a bunch of individuals that are fighting amongst themselves while the other team scores touchdown after touchdown against you.
1: If only they would have called it Beyonce care instead of Obamacare. <laughs> no one votes against it.
0: Listen, <laughs> I, I have seen this this president take too much pleasure in attacking black women. So he would have found a way uh, uh, to go after even Queen Bee. It would have been popular B. boy. Queen B. <laughs> B. yes, it would have <laughs> Good been. Good luck for feeling <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah you, you see how the Beehive does, or the beehive rather. You see yeah. how they do it. They don't put mess around. No. All right, real quick, before I get you out of here, little game I like to play on this podcast Uh-oh. called This or That. And being, it's called this or that because I'm too lazy to name it. So it's just this, this or that. This or that. You get two choices. Okay. Now, being that you are. I get two choices. Two Either choices. Either this or, is or that. Is, or is that. Of the two I give you, all right? Okay. <laughs> okay. Don't bring in other choices.
0: Don't okay. say, well, what if? Mm Ain't okay. no what if. I have got myself in trouble. Yep. Playing this game. Yep. So and you're it, might try- <laughs> yeah. it might happen so you're,
1: again. It might happen again.
0: You're trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> That's right. Uh, That's
1: the whole point of this game. Oh, my
0: gosh. Okay. It's to
1: get you in trouble. All right. To force you to make All hard right. choices. And because All right. I usually tell people that sort of the fate of human existence depends on it. But given what your job is, right. I feel like I I mean, you're kind of already in that job uh, to some degree. So that has quite the same ring to it. All right. right. All right. Here so we this go. Or I'm, I'm scurred. All right. Be scurred. You should say scurred. In a debate, boom, Re- there it is. There's when right, right. words we to get We're plotting. In. That's
0: going to get out now. Yeah, we're going to
1: start a Cory Booker drinking game around how many black phrases you can get <laughs> in a presidential debate. We'll see. All right. Um, first question, public enemy or NWA?
0: Oh, public enemy.
1: See, see how easy that That's was for me? That's not hard. You're warming it up for me. Yeah, just, just a little warm
0: up. Yes, fight the power.
1: This is, it's going to get increasingly harder.
0: Okay, I'm afraid.
1: All right. Fujis are naughty by nature.
0: That is hard, but I, I have to go with the hometown folks and the Fugees, who are from uh, my community.
1: So. Yeah, from yours, but not by nature. Also, yeah, yeah, yeah. but specifically, specifically
0: Newark. Newark. Yeah, yes. Okay.
1: Yes. Rosario and he got game or Rosario in twenty fifth hour.
0: Now you're messing me. Now, <laughs> now you're messing me up. And for the two people the, who
1: don't know, Corey is dating Rosario. Nelson. Yeah, but now, so that was
0: a plant. Right. But this is going to get me in trouble mm. because- Don't say it. I have, I have to say it. Don't say it. You're, gonna, you're calling me out. How can I not I'm calling say you it? out.
1: Now you deserve whatever comes to you based off this
0: answer. Go I'm, ahead. It's going to be some flowers, honey, Yeah. but I haven't seen 25th Hour yet. I haven't seen it. I know it's good. I want to see it. I took like one of those movies I want to see. You know what I'm doing right now on Netflix? I am now in the fifth season of Jane the Virgin. <laughs> I am. I've watched the okay. whole thing during this campaign. When okay. I can't sleep at night, I'm. So I put on an episode just because I have a. I I I've seen so many of her films, you know, from uh, Rent all the way to Men in Black Two. But there's a lot of her things I have not seen, so I'm working my way through. It.
1: I, I bet you you saw Luke Cage though. I bet you were all over that.
0: You I know, know I was. <laughs> I, know
1: you're a, I know you're a comic dude, right? You know, I know it. And right? by the way,
0: and this was like this was like the now we months before leading up to, her, and every time she would appear on the screen. I would be, my heart, you know, would be excited. And and now I get to, that's...
1: See, I I will not ask you if if your heart beat a little faster when you saw my cameo in Luke Cage, because I'm assuming that didn't happen. I, <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it didn't. You got to see 25th
0: Hour, I man. know. I, and it's actually it's the so kind of movie good. I would see it. Yeah, I would see. You would yeah, like that a yeah, lot. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I hope, order some flowers, chocolate, whatever. Captain Kirk or Captain Picard? Oh
0: come on! I've, this is like you're talking to one of the biggest Trekkies in the world. I I've know. had to answer this question a million times. Look at my head. Look at my head, Picard. All I knew away. you were
1: going to say the wrong answer.
0: See, you know. <laughs> Honestly, it. honestly, it's I, I enjoy Kirk. the sort of the cavalier, you know, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, but like he, he's not a responsible officer, Kirk, sometimes. He's not a responsible officer. He's not. Officer. He's sleeping with green people. He's just like violating. But
1: that was like the first interracial love scene. Well, listen, Yo, he I, getting listen, with purple chicks. Oh, horror. No, that <laughs> no, was a horror though. Yeah, I, I
0: will, I will, I would just, whew, love her. She's an icon and she knows it. I've had this moment with her before. Yes. Love her. Love her. Rosario would have to be is gonna get a little worried because my love is deep. (laughs) (laughs) You would be stolen. Yes. All
1: right. Um, Jon Snow or Arya?
0: I have to tell this. You know, I I, Jon Snow. I just have to put it out there. I thought he was gonna. I he was my suspicion of who was gonna end up. Yes.
1: So nobody spoil it. Has anybody spoiled this? No. Corey has not seen.
0: Yeah, but I've I've asked a lot of questions. So I have
1: you. Yeah. Okay. So you feel like you know what happened?
0: I feel like I know what happened.
1: I don't know how you did not watch this last season. I don't
0: make me don't. I don't, don't. know how you didn't. White House. I know you, you were me. yes
1: running for president. It's important. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But
0: I'm no, no, saying, no. I'm saying White House.
1: Oh, just in general,
0: your job. No, 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 no. I'm saying we will watch that episode in the White. If you can make yourself available, if I'm President of the United States, I'm going to invite you to watch the final final episode with me. So you can see my you can see my react. What is your favorite food to eat when you are watching binge watch? I can
1: tell you, it's not vegan. <laughs> I can tell you it's not vegan
0: has anybody can just... ever
1: had Popeyes in the White House cause I would love to be the first I have Drake Hennessy in the White House
0: I'm some, I'll, I'm I'll bring, bring some impossible whoppers up in there for you to eat.
1: Ooh, yum! <laughs> <laughs> yum! Oh, let me a good tell you time. something. Let
0: me just tell you something. I, I'm going to say this to African Americans. Our health indices are horrible. There's a great guy. There's a great guy here in South in South Central Los Angeles. One of the, a great TED talk. Please watch this TED talk. It's, it's Ron Finley called the Gorilla Gardener. He says in South Central we got drive bys. And drive thrus and the drive-throughs are killing more people than the drive-bys. We got to start like d- doing some things to get our. I don't eat it often. I really don't. Okay, good.
1: Um, I'm just jealous. I didn't get a chicken sandwich.
0: The, you didn't it, get the, you didn't, that. That was a big controversy, it and people was. kept on coming to me and asking me, and I'm like, vegan. <laughs> Show me in Atlanta <laughs> <They're gonna> be... <laughs> when I go to Atlanta. It, it is slutty vegan. It's a, an incredible. I can take you some great, great food that will not you will not be missing Popeyes chicken but you pick Jon Snow. Absolutely. How do we go from Jon no, Snow? I just how do wanted, we get I off just the rails to... to no, I, just, I, don't, I, I don't even remember how we got from Jon Snow to Popeye's. That doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, oh,
1: because you are going to have a, oh, a, a White po- House well, a White
0: House viewing party. White House. And gonna, I'm invited. Uh, you're invited. I'm going to have food that you will enjoy.
1: Okay. Uh, Popeye's chicken sandwich. You'll be president. You can order it. It's, it's fine. Okay. That's not an abuse of power. <laughs> <laughs> or it's at least one everyone can live with. That's for sure. Um, Waffle House or IHOP? Because I know your last... Non-vegan meal I, was that's
0: pretty cool that you know this. Yeah, I so I know these things. Yeah. Um I I, I appreciate Waffle House, but please I hop all the way.
1: Okay. Um that's a good choice. More importantly, it's a safe choice. I haven't seen many videos of people getting their ass whooped randomly at IHOP <laughs> or of weird things happening at IHOP. All I know is after a certain time at Waffle House, it just goes down up in there. And if you prefer to have a weight staff that has all of their teeth, I would say go to IHOP. Because I feel like most of them have all of their teeth. Not so much a Waffle House. And yet yeah, that's slander. You
0: are clearly not running for president. Now. No. <laughs> clearly
1: not. Clearly <laughs> not. Uh, and I feel a way about Waffle House, but that's a, a whole other co- podcast. Batman or Superman?
0: look if if you had to ask me who I want to be, it'd be Superman. He is invulnerable. Uh, but uh, the the movies, Batman's movies are so much better.
1: I mean, I'm just somebody just as a comic character. and and
0: I mean bat there's a I think Batman is more complex, more layered, more interesting, okay. So you but pick if, the dude who wasn't actually a
1: superhero. He just had a lot of money.
0: He, first of all, a lot of folks have money, but they don't know what to do with it. Him and Tony Stark are like getting it done. But if you ask me who I want to be, I'm Superman. Every you want to be Superman? Yes. But you would choose. Well, Shack, kind of, has got another New Yorker has that taken. <laughs> he has that. He has. If that power should be given out, I think it should go to Shack before me.
1: Okay. And final question, because I often save the best for last. Okay. All right. A better nickname for Donald Trump. Cheeto Jesus or Cadet Bone Spurs?
0: Well, first of all, I would never use the name of my Lord and Savior <laughs> to describe Donald Trump. <laughs> so we're going to go with the Bone Spurs,
1: Cadet Bone Spurs,
0: which is which is just a truly ignominious reality that we had a president did anything he could to avoid the draft. And then he's taking away the right for great patriots like transgender Americans from serving. It's just like, it's so offensive to me. Please, Lord, put me on the stage with him in a debate because I am looking forward to that uh, one-on-one.
1: Well, it's funny because I feel as if there's just so many receipts that I I don't know how someone who is debating him just doesn't completely just undo this dude because he just gives you so much material. So much material. So it's just much so material. much that— like I don't even know where to start. If I I'm like, man, you used to roast people back in the hood, right? Yes. So And
0: he's got so much unearned swagger. I mean, he just needs to be he yeah. needs to be exposed. Yeah, he needs I, to be exposed. I have a
1: feeling there's a reason why he talks about certain candidates, but not others. That's right. Yeah, so uh, I have a reason. I, I think we can all figure out why that is because there's certain smoke. I think he definitely doesn't want. So anyway, Senator, thank you so much. Are you
0: kidding me? Thank you for this conversation. Yeah,
1: for spending this time with
0: me. I, I truly, truly appreciate it. I have a lot. Of, I'll say this to you all before it goes off. Sure. And I just have a lot of respect for you for someone oh. who s- stands up. Well, just because you, you don't know me very well. No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but you faced heat. You faced backlash, and you've you've stayed authentic. You've stayed true to who you are, what you believe in. And I really respect that. Your last column uh, about the NBA and and China is was like so on point. Well, thank you. And um, and and it just goes to so. Do you speak truth when it's convenient, or do you speak truth when you have to face hell? uh and and emerge and i'm still here which is a a wonderful thing that lessons that we all need to learn a little bit better
1: man that was so positive and like thoughtful it's gonna be real awkward when i transition to the last segment uh so uh cory Booker's getting out of here and as the listeners know last segment coming fuck it i'm bothered
0: (laughs) yeah i'm out of (laughs) here i'm i'm out
1: As you all know by now, I'm not one to hold back my opinion, but there are times where even I purposely withhold it purely because I just don't feel like being aggravated by idiots. But as Al Pacino said in Godfather, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. That would be Godfather 3, by the way. So until now, I was determined to stay away from the debate that's ensued since California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill that would allow college athletes to make money off their own name and likeness. This is landmark legislation for athletes who the NCAA has been pimping strong for way too long. I get so exhausted arguing that college athletes should be paid that I decided a while ago to just tap out. But when Newsom signed that legislation, it unleashed the most idiotic opinions as one stupid opinion after another was released into the atmosphere. Each one dumber than the last. I said to myself, self, don't do it. Ice cold. Don't do it. But fuck it. I'm bothered. Not so much by the people who continue to die on this dumb hill that college athletes shouldn't be paid. But for people who want to add confusion to the dialogue by arguing about things that ain't got shit to do with whether an athlete should be allowed to make money off their own name. An athlete being able to make money on their own image and name ain't got shit to do with the school. Nobody is messing with the church's money. If Gus's vacuums, Bob's mattresses, or Jenny's babysitting service wants to pay the ninth walk on to appear in a commercial in standard definition, Please tell me, why do you care? Even Tupac don't care. For those who want to fake care about female athletes, an athlete being able to make money on their own image or name ain't got shit to do with Title IX. Title IX is directed toward colleges and universities who must give equal opportunities to male and female athletes. If anything, this legislation could potentially help the earning potential of female athletes. Imagine if you're Simone Biles on Stanford's campus. Suddenly you can do autograph signings to make some money. Imagine if you're Maya Moore at UConn and winning back to back national titles and a local church wants to pay you to speak. A lot of female athletes reach the height of their popularity and fame in college, which means they could leave school with a nice little bag since they often don't have the same professional opportunities as men. Americans. Yay, capitalism. Yay, free market enterprise. Also Americans. College athletes shouldn't be able to make money off their own names because I won't be able to enjoy the game knowing people are actually paid fairly for what they earn. The NCAA has only one option here, and it isn't suing the state of California or kicking California schools out of the NCAA. Their only option is to get ahead of this by changing their rules and allowing athletes to make money off their own name. There are several other states who are considering doing the same thing that California just did. And more will join them simply because they don't want to allow other states to have a recruiting advantage over them. At some point, this fake amateurism model that the NCAA is clinging to will crumble. So the NCAA can either share some of the wealth or risk extinction. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify, and Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill.